This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Man, do I have a few amazing segments for you lined up now. This guy, our guest today, uh, he and his wife are just an amazing team. Uh, they've done some amazing things in real estate. Uh, their story is incredible. He's going to share a little piece of that with you uh, right off the bat today. And I know it's going to encourage you. Uh, I know that I hope whether you are a passive or active investor that you're going to listen closely to our guest today. His name is Rich Becky is the author of The Wise Investor, a modern parable about creating financial freedom and living your best life. He's a licensed real estate broker, active investor, co-founder of Real Wealth, a real estate investment group that helps its 60,000 plus members improve their financial intelligence, secure passive income, and obtain financial freedom. A pioneer in the field of business and personal coaching, he's a former vice president of the International Coach Federation and holds one of the ICF's first master certified coach credentials. Rich's work has been featured on TV, radio, and print, including USA Today, Entrepreneur Magazine, and the Wall Street Journal. I've enjoyed getting to know Rich and Kathy over the last number of years. I've had uh, Rich and Kathy on the show a few different times, and every time they bring us so much value. I'm honored to have him on for a number of segments today. We're going to jump into their story to some degree, his background, uh, and we're going to jump into his book as well, The Wise Investor, and talk about some specific things he has in the book uh, that I know you're going to learn from and take things home today. Enjoy the show with Rich. You're going to be inspired, and you're going to learn a lot. Rich, welcome to the show. Honored to have you on. I know you've been on the show. It's been a while. You and your amazing bride, you all are just quite the entrepreneurial duo. It's incredible to get to know you all a little better, even speak at some of the same conferences. I've seen you recently. So honored to get to spend this time with you, Rich. Thank you. Uh, just right off the bat, I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Whitney. Good to be here. It was great seeing you a few months ago. And yeah, my bride is amazing. I agree. <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful. You all are just have an amazing brand and business and looking forward to diving in. Uh, you know, let's give the listeners, though, a little bit more about who Rich is and, you know, just share a little bit about your all's focus in the real estate industry as well. And let's dive into this book that you've written as well. Absolutely. Sure. Well, who am I going way back? It was, uh, I was diagnosed hyperkinetic disorder when I was eight years old. So I was put in today, they call that ADHD, but they didn't, I'm older. So they didn't have that term back then. So I was put on Ritalin. I was put in the class for the learning disabled and made fun of in school. And so I've got this inner gremlin that I still am working to shake that tells me that I'm never going to be successful. I'll never amount to anything. But what turned things around for me was I got into weight training in my senior year of high school. I didn't even graduate with my high school class. It was like not school was not a, a good place for me. But weight training really taught me about building discipline, staying focused, coming up with a goal, envisioning success. And I started to apply those lessons to my educational pursuits and went on to get a degree in business and opened a health club when I was 23 years old. And that's when I really just got into business. I love business. I love leading a team. I love working with a group of awesome people to create a purpose and a mission and to really go after it. So fast forward, I moved to California. That's I grew up in Boston, moved to California 
California in 95. That's when I met Kathy, my wife, and was doing really well. I got into business and personal coaching back in 95 when it was new. It was a new industry and just loved it and kind of rocketed up in that industry because it was so new. I was elected president of a coaching organization and ended up having a front page article in the San Francisco Chronicle on, on myself and my clients. And so life was just like, on fire. Everything was great. Then I signed a book deal with Simon & Schuster, but then I was diagnosed with melanoma, which is the most advanced form of skin cancer. And they thought it had spread to my liver. And I met with an oncologist. This is after several months of testing. And the oncologist said that I had six months to live. I was 37 years old. My wife, Kathy, we had two daughters, 10 years old and three years old. And it was a real shock to our whole family. And so Kathy was a stay-at-home mom at the time. And she's the one who said, I have to find a way to make ends meet if Rich dies. So she went out and sought mentors and started to talk to successful people and found that most of those successful people had created their success and their wealth through real estate and real estate investing. So she got excited about that. She's like, this is what I can do. Thankfully, the doctor's diagnosis was wrong. The melanoma had not spread to my liver. It was just hemangiomas, which a lot of us have in our organs, just clusters of blood vessels. But it was enough on the scans to have them think that it spread and metastasized. So that was the thankful thing that I was at a new lease on life and made it through after a few surgeries to remove the melanoma, cancer-free. Now it's been 20 years since then. But that is what got us into investing. And that's what was the spark. Kathy and I did a cash out refi on the home that we owned in San Francisco. And we went to north of Dallas, Texas, to a little town called Rockwall. And we went out and bought five investment properties, single family homes, brand new builds. And these were man, $145,000 homes that we're renting for $1,500, $1,600 a month. So we're like, oh, this is good. This is easy. I love this. And that's what led us on this path. And then fast forward a little bit more, we had friends and family saying, how how are you doing this? How are you living in San Francisco and owning rental properties out in Texas? So we just decided to form a a small group to help our friends and family. And then Kathy had started a small radio show in the San Francisco area. So listeners of that show were saying, how did you do this? And we formed this group that we called Real Wealth. And today, 19 years later, Real Wealth now has over 66,000 members that we've helped create financial independence through investing in real estate. That's it in a nutshell is the best I can. Yeah, no, I love hearing your old story. It's just incredible. So many parts of that. I just appreciate your transparency, right? Even from the diagnosis at eight, I just think there's so many people that can relate to that as well, right? You know, in the struggle of that through school and I don't know, just getting labeled, right? I just, yeah. I, I think it's a crime almost. I mean, just, you know, <laughs> I, I do, you know, it's like, man, and you're such an example of, it wasn't true, right? I mean, you were able to come through that, able to do amazing things. You know, I just, I love the perseverance, right? That you just show through that, even opening your own health club at 23. I mean, I just, man, that's incredible. So, and I want to go there for just a moment. What about, you know, would you say the pushback that you received at that time? Was it, you know, were family members or friends maybe saying, hey, Rich, you know, maybe you should think about opening this club or this business. Maybe you shouldn't do this by yourself, or maybe you... You know what I mean? Like, I just wonder how much, you know, that pushback there was and how you overcame that. Yeah, definitely pushback. You know, I was intent on it. I was a competitive bodybuilder for about 10 years. So I had gone to a lot of different health clubs and gyms. And I would look at these places and say, 
I could do it better. And it was my training partner and, and I, we were on a trip to Florida and after several gyms like that, we're like, we can do it better. So we got home and I was all fired up. And then, yeah, then I met the resistance. I realized that I needed to get a loan and have someone co-sign with the bank that owned the property where we put, it was start with an 8,000 square foot facility. So it was convincing my parents actually. And my mom's always been a huge believer in me. She sees ADD as an extra ability. There's different, you know, there's different benefits that come from having ADD. ADD and get to see more and be more attentive to more things. So she's the one that believed in me. I did have to convince her because her concern was that I only had an associate's degree at the time. And she said, I'm just afraid that if you open this gym, that you'll never go on and get your four-year degree, which was really important to her. So I'm just like, mom, I promise, I promise if you give me this loan, if you co-sign in this loan, even if it doesn't work out, I'll work two full-time jobs to pay the loan back. It's going to work. I know it's going to happen. And somehow I sold my parents on it and they co-signed with me on the loan and my partner came in and it was a life-changing experience running a business. It was just me and my partners in the beginning. And then over time, we grew that 8,000 square foot facility to 23,000 square feet. We had 24 employees by the time I sold it when I was 30. And it just, it was the life changer. I'm always going back to my mom, thanking her for that. Had she not done that, there's no way I would be where I am today. And I wouldn't have helped the people that I've helped today and all that. So yeah, there was definitely some resistance there was definitely the naysayers saying, oh man, it's, I heard it's really hard to run a gym, run a health club. And, and it was hard. And those first couple of years were a grind, but we came through and made it happen. Yeah, I think that could speak to, you know, people who are maybe in those same shoes as you are, but also the parents of those individuals as well. I, I love that. And how has maybe that changed how you have thought about even parenting as far as, you know, like your mother signed with you and kind of helped push you or in this direction, right? Or believed in you. What does that look like now, you know, as, as a parent? Yeah, now we have adult kids, you know, one daughter's 30. We have a grandson now who's two and a half, which is pretty awesome. Our other younger daughter's 23 now. Our parenting style has very been much about using questions. You know, Kathy and I both went through coach training back in 1995 to 1996. And the power of the coaching that we learned is very Socratic, very much realizing that most people have most of their answers inside or they're resourceful and they can find those answers somewhere. And so... As parents, we always would just ask our daughters questions. We wouldn't tell them what to do or what they had to do or how they had to do it. It was very that Socratic, curious, uh, tell me more. What do you want? What's next? How are you going to go about that? And I think that's empowering for anyone, whether you're a parent, whether you're a coach, whether you're a business leader, all of those things is asking curious, asking the question, realizing that people are creative, that people are resourceful, that people can find out their answers where they need to, whether that be through books or podcasts or finding a mentor. So I just see as my job as a parent is to empower my kids to believe in themselves, to draw out the answers for them and to show them how to be resourceful instead of micromanaging and telling them how to do things. And that's the way we treat all of our employees at Real Wealth too. Love that, a lot of autonomy. Yeah, I have so much to learn from you. <laughs> no, always learning, man. Me too. That's awesome. your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Sam Rust. Joining us today is Bob Volker, who's a CPA, tax attorney, real estate attorney, and a multifamily developer with over 40 years of experience. Bob's got a background in complex urban mixed use, high-rise residential, affordable housing development, as well as real estate finance, including institutional debt equity and creative financing alternatives. 
Bob was the lead attorney on the West Hollywood Hotel and Condos and Legacy Apartments in LA and recently published a book on managing the complexities of real estate development. Bob, thanks for uh, lending your expertise to the show today. Welcome. No, thanks, Sam, for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I've met a lot of developers in in my time, not near as many as you've worked with probably, but uh, I love the optimism that comes with that. But there's also some warning flags with that personality type. The best ones that you've worked with, what did they have in common? Well, a couple of things. First of all, they're incredibly creative. They don't necessarily just go, okay, I want to build the next apartment box. The last developer I worked with, their goal was to always overbuild the market by about 30% in terms of their product type. They were always generating new thought processes about how to do crazy things like, you know, where does the bathtub go in in an apartment? You know, how do the bathtub and the shower interrelate with each other? What what do the apartment cabinets look like? How do we make them look more like a house and less like an apartment? How do we create all this social environment within the building so that the people want to be there and feel like this is more like a neighborhood, even though it may be a vertical neighborhood? than it is like just living in an apartment where people just come and go, you know, they go to work and they come back and they're in their apartment and then they go back to work the next day, creating more of a social network within the building, which I thought was really fascinating. I never really thought through those issues before. So their creativity, number one, their willingness to listen to the people around them, because I think some developers tend to be egomaniacs. They think that they know everything about everything. And the best ones will actually go, I want an architect that I spend a lot of time with that really understands my business. And I want to learn what they know. I want an attorney who's can be in my business. I really want them to guide me on how things should be set up. And I want to listen to their counsel. So it's not so much an autocratic system from top down, and it's more of a collaboration among peers. The last company I worked with, we had an architect on staff. We had a whole design group on staff where we designed, we got to design in all of our own projects, which was pretty cool to actually do that. It's very unusual in the development business to do that. And we had our own construction company. The one thing we didn't do was management because we didn't want all those headaches. We had in-house legal counsel and we had in-house interior designers. So, and actually brought in-house all of doing all our own finance. So we had it all in one place where everyone was collaborative. We actually went to a design build model, which I thought was really cool. Because what was happening over time is the cost of projects were getting out of hand and there were so many construction problems. And so we started even bringing in some of our major subcontractors to sit down with us at the very early levels of development to talk about how can we do this better? You tell us where you see the problems are and how can we save money and how we can actually build a better apartment complex without having the problems that we're having before. So that's those are the kind of things I think that make a great developer. Did you see more developers come from the construction ranks or from the finance ranks? Oh, much more from the finance ranks. I think most development companies are kind of built that way. Construction guys are out in the field dealing with the nuts and bolts of building and all the subcontractor problems and all that stuff. They don't tend to really understand the finance stuff very well. And at the end of the day, if you can't finance something, it doesn't matter if you can build it. So most development companies are structured where they have kind of like a a senior developer and then a junior developer and then an analyst. And over time, the analyst becomes a junior developer and then the junior developer becomes a senior developer. That seems to be kind of the, and then what happens is some of those people break off over time and form their own development companies. So that's kind of what happens. Yeah. It's an incubator that ends up hatching best Mm -hmm. friends and or competitors. 
Yeah, we, we say in Dallas that everybody in some way or another is related to Trammell Crow. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> yes. it seems to be the, the way it's worked. I'm waiting for the uh, definitive history of that firm because there's so many offshoots that have come out of there. Clearly. What was it like building in Dallas? I mean, I was reading articles that you'd written going back to 2012, 2011. So you were in Dallas for the last... 10 years-ish, you saw oh. a tremendous growth wave, maybe even longer than that. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been does... in Dallas since 1976. So yeah, yeah, so you've seen that town, I mean, come from Cowtown to one of the biggest cities in the country. Yeah. yeah. What was that like? Any interesting stories or anecdotes that you could share? I'm sure you've got a bushel of them. Jeez. It'd be like where to start, really. <laughs> you know, it's there were so many waves. The 1990 early 90s kind of real estate crash, late 80s, early 90s real estate crash was to a large extent Texas driven. There was a, just an over exuberance in real estate and maybe a little too much creativity in finance during those years. Every, every syndication deal that you saw in the early to mid 80s basically assumed that eventually your the apartment complex, even if it was just a standard apartment, was going to be converted to condos and be worth four times what you built it for. So I think we learned a lot of lessons during that. And then again, oh, I guess in the early 2000s, Dallas was kind of one of the hubs of the tech industry and there was a big tech crash in Dallas. Now I think it's much more stabilized because I think that there's a lot more diversification. There's been a lot more, I guess, kind of rings put around finance that make it much more stable rather than it going crazy in one direction or another. I have seen multifamily be a huge part of the growth in Dallas and really in all of Texas. I think over 50% of the people in the state live in some form of rental product, which is kind of unusual, but it also has to do with the fact we have Texas has one of the, the youngest populations in the country. So it's been, it was really fun to watch. When I came out of law school in 1984, the hunt for young lawyers, real estate lawyers in particular, was just crazy. I mean, they couldn't bring enough people in to handle the volume of work that was going on. And the, the growth from really 84 to 2000 was just awesome to watch. He also just watched all these suburbs spring up like mad, like, you know, it's like throwing fertilizer on the grass. And they just grew up like crazy in that era. You mentioned uh, over exuberance a couple of times in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been, you've seen several shifts in the tide, as it were. You know, the saying is history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Yes. What do you see today that rhymes with stuff you've seen in the past? You know, this is such an unusual time. The pandemic is not something that, you know, we've seen in our lifetime. I guess maybe there are some people who are old enough to remember, you know, some of the really bad disease pandemics that we had in the past. That created a real interesting set of problems, particularly for office and for central cities. I think we're having real trouble from everything I'm hearing, getting people to come back to the center city and come back to the office. Mm-hmm. Young people in particular want flexibility in their work lifestyle, which having worked like crazy for 40 plus years of my career, working Saturdays and nights and all that kind of stuff over the years, it's nice to see that people are at least thinking that way. I think it's tough for young people to be that because they have to ultimately get into their careers and advance their careers. But I think it's going to be hard to bring people back to those office buildings. So I think we may see a big correction in office. I'm starting to hear that there's been overbuilding in warehouse space. I think Amazon's even saying that maybe they overbuilt warehouses. So I think that particular side of the industry is going to pull back, particularly if we go into some form of a recession. I don't think it's going to be major, but some form of a recession. 
I do think that multifamily is going to continue to be a rising star in large part, because as we just bought our house here in November, and if we had to buy our house again today, based on today's interest rates versus what we paid in November, our mortgage payment would be 60% more. And, you know, being retired, that's something we could afford if we had to. It's nice that we locked in when we did, but if you're a young person right now trying to buy a house, that increase by 60% on your mortgage payment basically prices a lot of people out of the market and it's going to push them back into multifamily. And multifamily is already strained because during the pandemic, a lot of the building that would have taken place kind of got shut down or slowed down. Plus lumber prices went crazy, as we all know, almost tripled. And that really caused a lot of projects to become unfeasible that people thought would be feasible. Although I think the drastic rise in rental rates has probably bailed out a lot of projects and managed to make them happen, even with high construction costs. So I think as lumber prices moderate, as labor prices for construction moderate because there's less construction going on, that you'll see a lot more multifamily being built. I don't know about the push to single family home rentals. That's one thing I don't really understand very well. Yeah, I think I kind of get it. It's a way to get people to want to live in houses to live in houses quicker. I just worry that they've pushed that whole single family market to the brink and we're going to see some pullback in single family home prices. So and flesh that out for our audience, maybe define what MESDED is. Maybe some folks aren't familiar with that term. Sure. But what risk does that bring in your eye to a development well, project? Well, you know, you kind of have, rel- has been relatively inexpensive for a long time, your basic construction debt and even permanent debt on apartments, which is, you know, let's say that's 55 to 70% of your capital, of your entire project, your capital, we call the capital stack. Your typical thing to do is then you layer on top of that just kind of traditional equity, say 25, 30% of your construction costs is traditional equity. And part of that comes from the developer. You know, your debt it, at the bottom of the stack is kind of your least risky. And then at the top is your developer equity, which is most risky. And your institutional equity in the middle is kind of in the middle in terms of risk. What happens is sometimes construction costs go up. A lot of times construction costs go up. Anymore, they always go up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) looks like you're going to blow your budget. Your debt won't go up because they're going, well, we're not sure you can get more rents to cover that. Your equity is like, well, we're kind of capped out. And so people go, well, maybe what we'll do instead, we'll put a little mes debt between the developer and that traditional equity. And the problem is those guys are really like loan to own. They are kind of waiting for you to have a trip because then they're going to take all that capital away that the developer puts in, they're going to take over your project and they're going to go restructure the entire deal and kind of beat up on everybody else underneath them. If those people are very, there are places where they make sense, but you better be very careful about how you do it because they really have a different mentality and how they look at a project. Your traditional equity partners, your institutions like Prudential, Life Insurance, or you know AEW, or people like that, your big capital partners, they tend to say, we want to work with developers long-term who have a track record, and we're willing to be patient with them. And we like doing multiple deals with each developer. And they, they're really kind of become part of your team. Your MES guys don't think about that at all. They're kind of warriors out there. And I just worry about what they're going to do to a project. So I, I just, when I was, the last couple of places I was as a developer, I kept saying, if we had to do MES debt, we better make sure the project's going to work because it's a way, a lot of times that that's just a way to lose your equity and, and lose all your developer fee. And it's just not a very fun place to be. 
Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.